It's easy to find a lot of statistics about marriage and divorce. It's often said that uh, almost half of all marriages will end in divorce, and of course you can find uh, statistics to support that claim. Uh, In reality, it's probably not that high, but there is uh, good evidence that uh, around 36% of marriages here in Australia will end in divorce. That's over a third, still a very high divorce rate. And Queensland actually has the highest divorce rate in Australia. As a nation, we are struggling with relationships. We're struggling to get this stuff right. And so all of us will have questions about singleness, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. But what does the Bible have to say about these things? Well, that's what we're looking at today, and we begin with singleness. Uh, All of us have been single at some point in our lives. Indeed, some people never get married. Some people don't want to get married. Uh, The starting point for a conversation about marriage is singleness. And I think uh, sometimes within the church, there's a tendency to see only married people as normal, as if we can only be properly fulfilled in marriage. Uh, But that can't be true, because Jesus was the most complete and fulfilled human being who ever lived, and he was never married. Uh, What's more, we live in a massively over-sexualized culture. We looked at this last week. Uh, So much so that it's hard for people to imagine profoundly intimate and lasting relationships that don't have a sexual element to them. As a church, we need to encourage and affirm platonic, intimate, life-giving relationships, the kind of relationships that Jesus had. There's nothing wrong or abnormal about being single. In fact, Paul encouraged singleness. In verse 7, he described it as a gift. He says, I wish that all of you were as I am, i.e. single. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. In other words, I wish you all had this gift of singleness, uh, but you might not have that gift. You might have another gift. Uh, Remembering, of course, that marriage is also a gift from God. So why Uh, is singleness a gift? Well, Paul gives two reasons. Firstly, he says that because of the present crisis, it is good not to marry. And he goes on to say, those who marry will face many troubles in this life. Uh, In Paul's day, Christians were facing persecution, as they are in many parts of the world today. The Roman emperor Nero's sanity was uh, deteriorating, and this in part led to the uh, severe persecution of Christians throughout the empire. So the more insane Nero became, the more he intensified his persecution of Christians. And even though when Paul wrote this letter, the worst was yet to come, he could probably see where things were headed. Paul's advice is very practical. If you remain single, uh, you won't have to witness your wife and children being mauled to death by dogs or burned at the stake or crucified. Uh, those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And we, when we look at the context, when we look at what was happening in the Roman Empire at the time, I think we can easily see why Paul would say something like that. But equally, by way of a more contemporary example, when we were in Tottenham, there were several women in our church whose sons had been murdered in gang uh, violence. Uh, marriage and family can be a great source of joy and blessing. But it can also be a source of real pain and anguish. And that's why Paul says that singleness can be a gift. The other 
benefit Paul gives in relation to singleness, I think is uh, more applicable to our context. He says, an unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. Uh, But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided, and then vice versa for the married woman. Those who remain unmarried can commit themselves uh, wholeheartedly and without distraction to the Lord's work. Singleness uh, can be a special kind of a calling that enables a person to serve the Lord in ways that they just couldn't do if they were married. And and so we should honour and uphold those who remain single because uh, they want to focus on a particular calling. But of course, singleness can only be a gift to the person concerned is completely comfortable with it. Uh, If someone is not at peace with their singleness, it's deeply unhelpful to say, well, that's just your calling, because it's probably not. So Paul says there's nothing wrong with singleness. It's a good thing. It can be helpful. But he also explicitly states that it's not a sin to get married. So now obviously we're talking about marriage. But why does Paul feel the need to tell the Corinthians that it's not sinful to get married? I mean, isn't that obvious? It's a bit of an odd thing to say, isn't it? Well, the first thing to remember is that 1 Corinthians is Paul's response to a number of questions that have been raised by the believers at Corinth. Now, we don't have all the correspondence. We don't have the letter or the letters that the Corinthian church wrote to Paul. Uh, We only have Paul's response. As Scott said the other week, uh, reading Paul's letters is a bit like listening in on one half of a telephone conversation. You can hear the person who's within close proximity to you, but you've got to guess what the, the person on the other end of the phone is saying based on what you can hear. Uh, But in this case, we're left in no doubt about the question because Paul quotes it back. Verse 1, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. That is what the Corinthians have written to Paul. You see, the Corinthians were terribly confused. They knew that they were to be distinct from the surrounding culture, but they weren't sure what that looked like, especially when it came to sexual relations. Remember that they were living in the most sexually immoral uh, city that it's possible to imagine. The the goddess Aphrodite was worshipped by people having sex with temple prostitutes. Uh, The god Apollo was worshipped by male homosexual acts of devotion, often with children. This was a city where God's good gift of sex had been corrupted and twisted and befouled, uh, as it has been in our culture, particularly by the insidious prevalence of pornography. So the Corinthians were thinking, well, maybe sex is evil. And they can be forgiven for thinking that, because in their context, it often was evil. And their question was, should we just stay single? And if we're married, should we just stop having sex? And if a Christian is married to an unbeliever, does sex between the two of them somehow uh, lead to uh, the contamination of the Christian? These were the kind of uh, questions that Paul was trying to address. And Paul is saying, staying single is good. Uh, We've seen his reasoning for that. But you don't have to stay single. Paul says it's better to marry than to burn with passion. In other words, he's saying to the Corinthians, uh, if your singleness is causing you to fall into sin, then that's probably not the right thing for you. As for remaining celibate in marriage, Paul says, no, that's not necessary. In fact, husbands and wives have an obligation towards each other. And Paul's teaching here is revolutionary. 
This idea that husbands and wives belong to each other, uh, this idea of sexual equality was something totally new. And Paul says, don't deprive one another unless it's by mutual consent. You both agree, and it's for a limited period of time uh, in order that you can uh, focus on prayer and pray more effectively together. By the way, this phrase, do not deprive each other, is not a license for the husband or the wife to demand sex on tap. Uh, There can be other reasons why sexual relations become difficult in a marriage. Illness, exhaustion, grief, stress, low self-esteem, the list goes on. Uh, And those of us who are married need to be considerate, uh, sensitive and caring. We need to be loving. Uh, But sexual intimacy is the norm for married life, and so a husband and wife uh, work together to cultivate a healthy and fulfilling sexual relationship. So in terms of distinctiveness, what is clear from Scripture, and particularly from Paul's teaching, is not that sex is bad, rather it's to be enjoyed within its proper context, which can only ever be marriage. Paul says each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman with her own husband. It reminds me of uh, what we read in Proverbs 5, 15 to 21. It says this, Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. It's a bit one-sided because... Proverbs is uh, predominantly written for uh, young men. May may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The Bible has the most beautiful and romantic view of marriage and sex. And it's very clear. Marriage is a lifelong monogamous commitment and the only proper context for sexual relationships. So marriage is a beautiful thing. But we know that many, many marriages end in divorce, including Christian marriages. And marriages end for all kinds of reasons. Selfishness, neglect, unfaithfulness, abuse... Uh, unrealistic expectations of what marriage is. Marriage is really hard. Uh, It invariably invariably involves a lot of ups and downs, a lot of give and take, a lot of sacrifice. Marriage is a tough gig. Uh, Sometimes marriages end for the most bizarre reasons. Here's a few that I, I came across. In California, a woman left her husband of 22 years because he voted for Donald Trump. When I told Tissa about this, she seemed to think that was quite reasonable, but um, that's that's another matter. Uh, One man filed for divorce just days after the wedding because he saw his wife for the first time without makeup. It's hard to imagine anyone being that shallow. If you've ever seen the film Shallow Hal, it's like something straight out of there. Uh, A Japanese woman divorced her husband of six years because, and wait for it, he didn't like the film Frozen. I mean, it must have made her wonder what kind of a man she'd married. Now, all those situations are real situations, and we might find them amusing, but they're also tragic. It is heartbreaking 
to see God's good gift of marriage being treated so glibly. So what does scripture have to say about divorce and remarriage? Well, actually quite a lot. In the New Testament, we find reference to divorce in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, twice in Matthew's Gospel, and also here in 1 Corinthians 7. So we need to take all of that into account. And it seems that for the most part, Jesus' teaching on divorce was in response to a particular question. You see, in Jesus' Jesus's day, there were uh, two rival schools of thought. Uh, one held that a man could only divorce his wife for serious transgressions, something like adultery. And the other held that a man could divorce his wife for pretty much anything, right down to burning a meal or being a bit cranky. Uh, That's why in Matthew 19, the Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? They want to see where Jesus sits on this controversial issue. And the gospel writers present us with slightly different perspectives. In uh, Mark 10, Jesus presents divorce as a devious form of adultery. If a husband or wife divorces their spouse and remarries, they commit adultery. In Matthew 19, Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. So here there is an exception. If a man divorces his wife because of sexual immorality, basically uh, adultery, then he is free to remarry. And Matthew only deals with a man divorcing his wife because in a first century Jewish context, it couldn't happen the other way around. A, A woman wasn't allowed, wasn't able to divorce her husband. Also in Matthew, in Matthew 5, uh, Jesus speaks about divorce in the Sermon on the Mount. To understand this one, we need to uh, go back a little bit. Uh, Jesus said, you heard that it was said, you shall not murder. But I tell you, if you get angry with a brother or sister, it's as if you've murdered them in your heart. I'm paraphrasing. And then again, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery with her, In your heart. And now it makes more sense when we read, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. And that's how easy it was in Jesus' day. The the, the husband would literally just write a certificate, your divorce, give it to his wife, and that was the the end of it. Uh, But Jesus challenges that. He says, But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman, commits adultery. Jesus is intensifying the demands of the law for those who follow him. And he's demonstrating just how damaging it is for a man to divorce his wife. It makes her the victim of adultery. Again, a new concept. In that context, only a man could be the victim of adultery. And Jesus challenges that head on. And then he says, you know, if a man divorces his wife, it leads to yet more sin because anyone who marries her is also guilty of adultery. But, and this is crucial, if she doesn't remarry, she'll be single and without protection in a patriarchal society. The point being that divorcing a woman in the context of first century Jewish culture put her in an absolutely impossible situation. The law says, Give your wife a certificate of divorce, but Jesus' followers are not to divorce their wives at all. That's what Jesus was saying. Finally, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes, To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. When he says not I but the Lord, he's saying this is something that Jesus taught on specifically. Uh, 
He says, I give this command, a wife must not separate from her husband, but if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. But remember, this is in response to the question, is sex evil? Should we abstain from sex even within marriage or separate from our spouses altogether, especially if they're still pagan? And Paul is very explicit. No, don't separate, even if your spouse remains uh, a pagan, is not a Christian. So scripture is very clear. Christians ought not to get divorced. Now, someone might say, yeah, but you don't know how unhappy my marriage is. Well, God doesn't want us to get divorced, but God doesn't want us to be in unhappy marriages either. And so the, the solution, if you like, the grand, uh, the, the, the aim of life is to sanctify that marriage, to redeem that marriage, to make that marriage all that it can be in Christ. That is what the Lord would have for us. Christians ought not to get divorced. A concession is made in the case of adultery, but this is really just to acknowledge that human beings are sinful and broken, and we need a way of ordering our lives when things go horribly wrong, which they can do. But Paul makes one more exception, and it's in response to the question, what if you become a Christian, but your spouse doesn't? And again, Paul is very clear. The believer is not to initiate the divorce. But given the distinctiveness of Christianity over and above the surrounding pagan culture, it's not hard to see how this situation would create a considerable degree of tension within the marriage. One person is a Christian, the other is a pagan. That's a difficult situation. When I was about 10, my mum became a Christian. I think my father thought that she'd joined some kind of a cult. And I can remember my mum saying to my dad, and it wasn't very sensitive, but she said, Jesus is number one in my life. From now on, he comes first. And you can imagine that went down like a lead balloon. And uh, there was a degree of tension around that. I'm so thankful that my dad gave his life to Jesus some years later. But imagine that kind of tension and uh, multiply it by about 20 in the average Corinthian household where one is a Christian and the other a pagan. So Paul says the Christian should not initiate the divorce, but if the unbelieving husband or wife wants to leave, let them do so. The believer is not bound in that situation. That doesn't mean that the believer can make their spouse's life so miserable that they want to leave. No. As Christians, we love our spouses, whether or not uh, they're believers. And the power of the Holy Spirit will make that love deeper and stronger and more active. Being a Christian should, over time, make us a more loving uh, and a better spouse. And I think that's what um, won my dad over in the end, just seeing the positive change in my mother. Uh, that's one of the key things that I think brought him to faith. So Christians ought not to divorce, but there are exceptions, adultery or an unbelieving spouse who ups and leaves. And I think there are other exceptions that aren't specifically dealt with in the New Testament. The the New Testament doesn't address every moral situation that we could ever encounter. For example, I don't think anyone would argue that someone should stay in a marriage where there is physical abuse. Uh, We wouldn't expect someone to stay in a situation that is dangerous or even life-threatening. 
Uh, sometimes we have to reach conclusions based on the trajectory of Scripture. Of course, we can't go in the opposite direction to Scripture, but we can follow the trajectory to uh, make decisions about things that aren't specifically addressed because life is so nuanced there's so many different situations we can face. But even in the most extreme circumstances, for Christians, divorce should be an absolute last resort. The aim is always restoration, transformation, redemption. Sadly, that's not always possible. That should always, always, always be our aim. And one of the most compelling reasons that Christian marriage should not be broken is that marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Ephesians 5 includes a description of marriage, at the end of which it says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Marriage among Christians, or indeed any marriage, points to the relationship between Jesus and his people, the church. Our marriages Our marriages should be a witness and a testimony to God's love and faithfulness, to the love and faithfulness of Christ. If we leave our spouse and marry another, we're telling a lie about the way that Christ loves the church. Jesus will never leave, forsake, or abandon his church. Let's not tell a different story with our marriages. So as Christians, we have a really high view of marriage. Divorce is an absolute last resort. So how do we respond to divorce? We respond with love and compassion and grace. Where there's sin, we encourage repentance and we help the person to experience Christ's forgiveness. Where a person has been sinned against, we help the person to find Christ's healing. Where there's a mixture of both, we do both. So finally, let's try to summarize what we can deduce from the Bible about remarriage. Can Christians remarry after divorce? Well, some New Testament texts seem to prohibit that option, whilst others leave the door open. Matthew 19 clearly allows the husband, whose wife is guilty of adultery, the option of remarriage. And in Mark and 1 Corinthians, it's only the person who initiates the divorce that is prohibited from marrying again. So in the case of adultery or protracted desertion, the option uh, of remarriage exists in Scripture. But if we're going to extend the grounds for divorce to other extreme circumstances, and we talked about a a physically abusive relationship, but but it could easily be um, a a psychologically abusive relationship, uh, well, in those cases, I think we would also extend the option of remarriage. Uh, This is one of those issues where I think the Bible invites us into a conversation and we have to prayerfully and carefully uh, discern the way forward because not every situation is specifically pinpointed by Scripture. So what conclusions can we reach? Well, firstly, we can affirm singleness. It's okay to be single. In some cases, it's preferable. Uh, Paul uh, seemed to be of the opinion that it's preferable in most cases. Uh, Secondly, marriage is a wonderful gift, a covenant that we should take with the utmost seriousness. Christian marriage is an opportunity to point to the relationship between Christ and his church. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Thirdly, divorce is unequivocally contrary to God's will. 
that as a concession to our sinfulness and brokenness, it is permitted under certain extreme circumstances. And fourthly, uh, the Bible's teaching on remarriage is maybe not as clear as we would like it to be. However, I think we're on solid ground if we permit remarriage under those extreme circumstances where divorce is permitted. So I'll ask the same question that I asked last week. What if we're sat here thinking, well, I've made a total mess of all this. And I think most of us at some point in our lives have uh, made a mess of this. Well, God's grace is sufficient. If we repent and put our trust in Jesus, he will meet us where we are. It's not about what we've done in the past. It's about how we intend to live from this day forwards. Even if a person even if a person enters into a marriage sinfully off the back of a divorce that's been caused by their adultery, even in that extreme, uh, unwholesome, difficult uh, situation, the marriage is still a marriage, uh, and marriage needs to be honoured. The great business of life, then, is to sanctify that marriage, to purify it, and to make it radically Christ-centred. We cannot erase the past. But we can live for Jesus today, tomorrow, and for all eternity. So let us honor God with our lives and with our relationships and with our marriages. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a really difficult um, subject that we've had to address today marriage, divorce, remarriage. And we, we always want to live our lives in line with your will, in line with uh, Scripture. And a certain amount of discernment is needed in this whole area. And we pray that you'll continue to speak into our hearts and lives, uh, help us to uh, discern your will for us. Uh, but we also pray that we, as a church, will... Uh, be a witness and a testimony to the love and the faithfulness of Jesus, that we will uh, hold marriage in the highest regard and we will honour you with our marriages, with our relationships. Father, help us to work through all this stuff together and to be your people and to be distinctive. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.